Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. It's our 98th episode of Atomic Moms, guys. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, this particular episode has been a long time coming. Pregnancy loss. Many of us would rather plug our ears and go, la, 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 if I don't think about it, if I don't talk about it, if I don't acknowledge it, I'll never have to face it myself. I even thought, maybe this is a topic to do once I'm done with getting pregnant, once I'm in the clear, as if I have any control. I may not have control, but I have a choice, right? We can numb out and run from our own deep-seated fears. But in doing so, we might just be numbing out and running from members of our motherhood tribe who could use our support. This podcast is about supporting women in all aspects of motherhood at all stages. We cannot control much of what happens to us. We can do everything quote-unquote right and things still go wrong in our bodies. I know that very well from my oncology appointments in the past. Life is unfair. Not everything happens for a reason. And I will happily arm wrestle, happily arm wrestle anyone who says differently. Not everything happens for a reason. But those events do change our lives, and it's how we grow from the pain and the achiness that makes the women we are. This topic stirs up our own lack of control and mortality. Anyone can host a baby shower, and my God, there are enough blog posts about how to do it perfectly. But have we spent much time talking about how we can sit with a mother alone in excruciating pain? and not try to cheer her up or help her get over it, but just to be witness. Of all the women who know they're pregnant, 20% will miscarry. That's hard to swallow. Each year, there are nearly 24,000 stillborns in our country. These numbers can be haunting and overwhelming, but there's so much to be learned from the strength of these women. Today, I'm introducing you to two remarkable mothers who devote their own lives to helping moms. These guests today have both experienced pregnancy loss themselves. They are clinical psychologist, Dr. Jessica Zucker, and midwife, Georgina Blanchard. We'll be talking about what support we can offer moms, what to say, what not to say. And for those of you listening who have experienced this yourself, We'll be talking about pregnancy anxiety and the sense of isolation, the self-blame. While we're all on different mothering paths, none of us are alone. I hope these stories these guests today share can help in some small way. I'll be right back with our first guest, Dr. Jessica Zucker. She's a clinical psychologist specializing in women's reproductive and maternal mental health with an international public health background. She serves on the Medical Advisory Council of Every Mother Counts. I've been soaking up her writing from the Washington Post, Time, Glamour, and the New York Times. We'll be right back. 
Dr. Zucker, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Thank you so much for having me. You started the campaign that went viral, hashtag I had a miscarriage. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about why you started that campaign. Did you have a feeling that it could become this big and what's the importance of it? Well, so that was born in October of 2014. Um, And so backtracking a little bit. So I, as you just said, you know, I'm a psychologist. I specialize in women's reproductive and maternal mental health. And I have for, you know, over a decade now. And when I specialized in this field, I had not experienced a reproductive trauma myself. But um, in October of 2013, I had a 16-week miscarriage myself. And that kind of shifted everything you know, for me professionally, personally, um, just on so many levels, because I had been writing, you know, about pregnancy loss. I had been writing about things that I was seeing in my practice, um, but not anything that was personally, uh, it hadn't personally hit me. I hadn't been touched by the things that I was actually writing about. So I conceived it the idea of the hashtag because I sort of wanted I mean, I I was almost tempted to make a T-shirt that said, you know, I had a miscarriage as a way to kind of like lambast um, this cultural silence or the taboo um, to kind of shatter this idea that we should keep quiet about things that are difficult. Um, I mean, how could there be stigma in something that happens to you? I mean, it's not like something you're doing. It's something that happened to you. And yet so many people you know, stay quiet about this or, um, you know, feel really uncomfortable sharing their stories or thinking that something might be wrong with their bodies or thinking something might be, you know, that they somehow deserved this loss. Right. Or even you just all the the articles that we see every day about how, you know, it's coffee, it's exercising too hard, it's phthalates in our hair conditioner. What does Mm. the research say? Well, I agree with you. I mean, there's so much information out there and some of it is well-researched and other stuff is kind of maybe pop, you know, psychology or whatever. um, And which is, you know, can be incredibly overwhelming and inundating for women who are thinking about becoming pregnant, women who are pregnant, women who have had losses, um, you know, because if you're not an actual researcher, it can be difficult to, you know, parse out what's, you know, sound research and what's just, um, you know. Right. It's clickbait. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but the overwhelming research does show that women are reporting, like I said before, you know, a self-blame, guilt, shame, all of these things that I just found troubling on a whole other level after I went through my own miscarriage. So, I didn't have an experience um, of feeling like my body had, quote, failed me. I didn't feel like something was somehow wrong with me. I didn't have a sense that I did anything wrong. I mean, it, everybody's situations, of course, are so unique. I had already had a healthy son. So I think in some ways I had proof, you know, that my body could you know, develop um, a healthy child. And so maybe that's why I didn't go there in my head. Um, but I just, I, I kind of became, you know, dead set on being part of changing culture around this particular issue because 
I don't, I don't want women to be feeling badly about themselves when they're already feeling badly about this loss. And so that's why I decided, you know what, I'm going to write my full story, you know, for the, in my New York times piece, which is where I um, launched the, the hashtag campaign. Um, I'm going to write the particulars of my story because I'm going, because for two reasons, well, many reasons, but it, it was twofold. One was I want to model for other people that there's no shame in sharing our stories, right? So it's like, and there's no shame or there shouldn't be, you know, silence around life events that are happening to us. And again, particularly things that are heartbreaking where we need the most support potentially. And then I also did it to really try to stir a worldwide conversation so even if people didn't participate, for example, I mean, I was doing it through Twitter. I, I'm not on Facebook, but, you know, so even if someone was on Twitter and saw the hashtag going wild that day or whenever and didn't jump in and use it, I wanted someone, let's say, in whatever country, you know, across the world to see it and to, to think, oh, wow, you know, like I'm not alone. I mean, this is happening all over the place. This thing is going wild. So they don't have to participate. Not everybody needs to be public, of course, about their sadnesses, you know. But I wanted to kind of create a global feeling of connectedness, community, and support because too many women are feeling alone in their experiences. And your writing is so powerful and it's so personal and it must have been so healing for women to pick up that newspaper. Like for the Washington Post, you wrote, mm. at 16 weeks pregnant, I had a life-threatening miscarriage. What I now think of as an unassisted home birth to a daughter I will never know. Mm. Did I write that? I know. You wrote that. <laughs> that like I mean, makes me, I'm going to cry. It made I me know. cry. I mean, it's yeah. been to imagine these women who hold on to these yeah. um their secrets or they're just stories that they that haven't had a container that you know I know I think of uh my sister-in-law Natalie Taylor she uh she was pregnant when she lost her husband and I just oh think of goodness. all the dumb things that yeah. people would say and so she wrote a yeah. memoir about that and that was it was healing for so many people to read that and she's been on the podcast recently but just all the dumb stuff people say you know there's a reason or you know all of these things oh, that people goodness. say yeah. that they're trying to help but we don't know how to help and it's but um, see that's the thing ugh. are they <laughs> i know right? i can't help but think this i came upon this when i launched you know i launched this um line of pregnancy loss cards last october and I realized in thinking through, you know, the messaging that I wanted to convey on all the cards and the interviews I was doing for the press and stuff, like, actually, I think it's that the person who's not grieving is so uncomfortable that yeah. they're trying to get away from the uncomfortability of this conversation or of this topic. I just got chills. So, I think you're totally I don't right. even... I don't know that they are trying to help the person by saying everything happens for a reason. Is that helpful? No, it's a way to shut it down. Humans have this like really great quality. I'm being sarcastic, but where we, uh, 
you know, we're trying to figure out why, yeah, that we do place blame or we do want to say, well, if yeah. we don't do this, we'll be fine. Oh, well, if we don't exercise exactly. too hard, we'll be fine. If we don't drink coffee, we'll be fine. Um, yep. In the case of pregnancy loss, in my sister-in-law's case, it was, um, he had mm-hmm. died in a skateboarding accident. Um, it was oh a total, my. it was total freak accident, right? He was Luke. just skateboarding with right. a friend. Like, but right. people had to keep asking, was he wearing a helmet? Everyone should wear helmets. We get that. But I found that people, my interpretation of people asking that question was, he's to blame or, yeah. or this is how I can stay alive. Like, this, That's right. like, I don't have to acknowledge that freak stuff happens. I know. Okay. So that, I love your insight on that. That is like the truest thing. And I think we do that because we're trying to stave off the very notion that we are all vulnerable. There, there is no way to not be vulnerable. And so we can think that, okay, now I'll just wear a helmet. Well, you don't wear a helmet while you're driving. Like something can happen when you're driving. I mean, yeah, there's a million ways we can die. Every right. <laughs> like when, when hard things happen, we become that much more aware that that thing could happen to us. And I think in part, sadly, I think women who experience pregnancy loss are turning to themselves to blame because they're hoping that that means they can harness a different level of control the next time around if they go on, if they want to, you know, have another pregnancy. It's like, oh, well, okay, yeah, it was because I was exercising too much. So this time I won't. Or, you know, maybe, you know, if I believe in a God, you know, more this time, then I won't lose a pregnancy. And it's like, we don't have control over fetal development. We just don't. I mean, there's a lot we can do to get things tested, to find out if things are healthy along the way, even beforehand. But truly, I mean, pregnancy is a long process. And to be vulnerable that long, is it, it can be excruciating, and especially after a loss. What advice do you give to the mother who has experienced this um, wants to become pregnant again, but is so fearful or who is in the middle of, I mean, yeah, nine months is a really long time. It's so long. One of the cards I created is for pregnancy after pregnancy loss, because it was a card that I wish I received like every single day in my subsequent pregnancy, because I mean, I was searching for blood on a daily basis. You know, even when I thought I wasn't, I was, you know, I was aware that there wasn't blood, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, um, and I think, you know, truth be told, I, I, you know, the, the hashtag campaign didn't come until I was sort of quote unquote on the other side of all of this. You know, it's like, I couldn't really um, engage in this level of intensity around this topic until I was like fully done having children, you know, mm-hmm. um, and was no longer sort of potentially going to have another miscarriage, you know, so I had had my son and a number of years later had the 16 week miscarriage. And then about four months later, I got pregnant with my now daughter who's turning three in December. And, you know, I was still in the midst, in the throes of my trauma when I got pregnant again. And so that's the thing, you know, it's like a lot of women, whether it's, you know, age or the age gap between the potential siblings or whatever it might be, you know, people often are getting pregnant when they're still grieving. And that's intense. And that's partly why I am like fiercely passionate about this topic, because 
that means that this woman not only maybe felt alone after the miscarriage, if people weren't, you know, supporting her, or they were saying things that were minimizing or sort of even magnifying um, the experience. But then if she's going on to get pregnant, then I'll, like there's a whole other world of comments that tend to come out around that. Like at least, you know, someone said to me, like, at least you got your girl, you know, cause the, the previous pregnancy was a girl too. So it's like oh just these God. kinds of, yeah. Like, or like, I mean, there's so many, yeah, variations of inappropriateness and it's sad. I mean, the thing is I look back and I'm sure that I too said things that made no sense to people going through these things because I didn't know. Um, so part of it is what I said earlier, which is like, we just don't like to deal with uncomfortable topics and out of order loss. But it is also truly that people just don't know what to say. I mean, they're just mm-hmm. not, we're, we're not well-versed in this. We're not armed with um, information. And the truth is, I think that the simplest words of empathy or sympathy, if you want to call it that, you know, that's all we need. Mm-hmm. All I wish that someone had said was like, how are you? I'm thinking of you. You know, I'm here if you want to talk, you know, and, and checking in kind of consistently, because I think, again, people assume that grief dries up when you get pregnant again or with a healthy pregnancy, you know? And so like, oh, I never have to ask about that person's miscarriage again. Well, that's not necessarily true at all. Um, And especially for women who, for example, have had stillbirth experiences, you know, a lot of those people feel that that is their first child or that is a child within their family. So they don't want people to pretend like that didn't exist just because they're going on. When you had your experience, you still you had a kid at home you had to take care of. Yes. How do you juggle or balance processing your grief as a mother while maintaining your active role as a mother? Mm. I have been thinking about that a lot actually recently. Um, And I don't, I'm not sure how that went, to be honest. I think that I thought I was doing a good enough job. Um, my son didn't know that I was pregnant, so it's not like we had to really talk about the loss. And so I didn't have to deal with explaining, um, death and and loss to him, but I was just out, you know, I mean, I was, I was kind of just so, um, without, you know, I just wasn't myself for a while. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I did my best, I guess, and, mm-hmm. but I look back and I do wonder, you know, if, if that impacted him or what, how, how I had the stamina to get through my days. I mean, I, I, I came back to work less than a week later. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what. You go back to I work and I you could... get to hear everybody else's problems. Right. <laughs> No, and I had to also really get into with people who knew I was pregnant because everyone did because I was 16 weeks and big, like their feelings about it. Oh, my God. The (laughs) fact that you have to help other people deal with what you're dealing with is like so insane. It was intense. (sighs) And it was so healing, though, for me, I have to say. You know, my experiences with my patients have actually helped me heal a lot because in, in now really sort of understanding their experience from the inside out, you know, when it comes to pregnancy loss, like I was able to be there for them or, or understand them in a way that there was just no 
I couldn't, I couldn't know these things, even if I read every single book Mm -hmm. about it, you know? Absolutely. One question before we end, I'm wondering, do you reach out if the person hasn't told you directly? Because in the past, when I have heard Mm. about a pregnancy loss, if it wasn't a close girlfriend, I would just keep my mouth shut because I didn't want it to seem like people were gossiping. True. So what what do we do? Is this somebody that has more like a six or eight week loss or are we talking about like a stillbirth or like, you know. Let's jump into all of it. Let's start with uh, the, let's say it's an early loss where, you know, maybe you didn't even know she was pregnant. Yeah, I think if it's an early loss, I think it's best to, if someone hasn't shared that they were even pregnant or that they're not anymore, I, I don't think it's necessarily helpful to bring it up. Um, because again, what's interesting is one woman who has a six week loss may be bereft and may remember this the rest of her life. Whereas another one may see this as like, eh, you know, it's like a natural hiccup. This happens in, you know, approximately one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. Okay. So I'm one of them and we'll just try again. So it's like, we can't assume we can't know how somebody feels unless we inquire. And if we're not that close, it can be a little, you know, tricky to know how much to ask and how much to say. And and we don't want to say like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And they're like, oh, wait, I'm not upset about it. Why, yeah. why are you acting yeah, like why that? Why are you projecting you know? onto me? Yeah. Exactly. So um, I think it's different with a later loss because I think that if the belly has almost like become part of the community, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, if the awareness of pregnancy has reached everyone just through her body changing so much, like um, to not say anything seems a little uh, different to me there. Right. Because they were clearly, everyone knew (laughs) even if they hadn't told you specifically. So even with that, it's, I think it's just lovely, even if it's like a, a distant friend to say something like, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. And if you ever want to talk, I'm here. That's it. You know, it's not complicated really. And then they can tell you, you know, it's like, I'm like, you know, I'm feeling terrible. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Or, oh, I'm so glad we found out this news because it could have been a stillbirth had we not learned earlier that this was wrong. You know I mean? So again, it's like, maybe the person will open up and really have the opportunity to share their story and their emotional kind of landscape at that time. And that might feel really good for them. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zucker. Listeners, you can find all of Dr. Zucker's articles on drjessicazucker.com. It's a gorgeous website, as well as her pregnancy loss cards. They are so beautiful. You must check them out. And I have something else coming in October. So stay tuned. Oh, yes. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> we, and we will uh, we'll share that information as soon as we know it. Uh, she also yep. writes daily on Instagram at I Had a Miscarriage. I'll be right back with Georgina Blanchard, a midwife in Toronto with two beautiful sons. Mm-hmm. 
Georgina Blanchard lives in Toronto with her husband and her sons, Arthur and Simon, ages five and three. She has a master's degree in sociology from Queen's University and has worked in various areas of qualitative healthcare research. She is in her final year of midwifery studies at the Midwifery Education Program at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, and will be a registered midwife by May 2017. Thank you, Georgina, for sharing that bio. And thank you for uh, sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you for asking me to join you, Ellie. You have spent six years studying midwifery. And every, by the way, every time I say the word midwifery, I feel like I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> no, you're saying it right. A lot of people say midwifery, but it's actually midwifery. What was it that drew you to midwifery? I was drawn to it specifically because of the way the care is provided. The woman is, or the pregnant person is basically seen as the primary decision maker in Ontario midwifery care. So there's a lot more information giving that goes into care with a midwifery practice generally. And um, the clinic days are much long. Like you have a, a visit with your client would be 45 minutes long as opposed to a visit with an obstetrician, which tends to be, you know, anecdotally five to 15 minutes generally is what people tend to get with an obstetrician and you can get great care with an obstetrician, but it's a little more focused on the woman. There's just more time and you get to go to the person's house and help them with, you know, they can have a home birth um, if everything's progressing normally, or they can, you know, you go to their house the first day the baby's born on day three, day five, you go um, between day 10 and 14 as well. And you, any other time basically that anyone needs help if there's breastfeeding help or, you know, just anything that we can help with. And so I just like the interaction. It's kind of the opposite of academia. You're very, very hands-on and it's very personal. It's so personal. You are required to attend a minimum of 60 births in your program. Yeah. It must feel pretty incredible to be there at the mm -hmm. moment that a child takes his or her first breath. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I cry every time. I keep wondering if I, when I graduate, I'm going to stop crying. But I don't think so. I think that uh, a lot of midwives and a lot of obstetricians, for that matter, get pretty teary-eyed. Every, every birth is a miracle. It's, it's pretty amazing when you see the baby come out and you see the parents are happy and, you know, the baby's just wailing around, which is what you want. And it's, it's really, really a, a great experience to be a part of, for sure. When you enrolled in your midwifery courses, were you pregnant yet? I was admitted into the part-time program. So I was doing some consulting work and research on the side and then just doing some of the classwork. And I was inspired to conceive a baby through midwifery. It was, I knew I wanted to have children, but uh, it happened a little bit sooner and a little bit faster just because, you know, you sit around talking about babies all day and how babies are made and how babies can be born and all the amazing things that go into that. And it, it was inspiring <laughs> romantically and physically. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, and thank you again for coming on the show and speaking to us about your pregnancy loss. I think that's an incredibly uh, brave and generous thing to do. You... Uh, became pregnant with your first child, who you named Charlie, and mm -hmm. you delivered him at 20 weeks. He was 2.2 pounds, mm -hmm. um, and you were able to hold him. And yeah. I'm wondering, what was it like going back to school after losing your child? 
Did you ever think mm -hmm. of quitting? I can't imagine going through this experience and we'll be sharing your essay, mm -hmm. but I can't imagine losing a child and then having to show up at school uh, to learn about the thing that you just experienced in such a different way. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely a challenge. Um, I know that at that stage of my career as a student, I did, um, I didn't attend births right when I should have. There was a, a course that I should have done that semester where you don't have any involvement in the clinical care, but there are lots of very helpful pregnant people in Toronto who are willing to have a newbie midwifery student come and, you know, take pictures or act as a doula in some sort of supportive care, but not really any clinical element. And I knew that that was not the right time for me to go to that. So I asked to be exempt from that class. And very fortunately, they, the midwifery program is extremely understanding. So I had a lot of support from my classmates, even though some of my classmates said after reading my essay that they hadn't realized the magnitude of the experience, but there was still a general level of you know, respect and support. So I felt pretty good, but I also had some accommodations, which I was deeply grateful for. You have five-year-old Arthur and three-year-old Simon. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about them. What's Arthur up to these days? Sure. Arthur is in kindergarten. He's in senior kindergarten. I'm not sure. I think the the levels are a little bit different in America, but he's having a great time there. And Simon, go, he loves to draw. Uh, he likes to play Transformers, and he is really into drawing dinosaurs and Transformers. He'll throw a flower in or a heart to make it beautiful. <laughs> He's really interested in making things beautiful, which I have no complaints about. Um, and, you know, Simon is three years old. He likes to say no a lot these days, and he likes to roar like a dinosaur as loudly as he can. So we live across the street from the park, actually, and sometimes... I'll come home from work and I can hear him roaring from where I've parked. And so I know they're in the park and not at home. But yeah, they're uh, they're really sweet little boys. And he goes to a preschool, which is in the same building as Arthur's school. So they're kind of together throughout oh, the day, so which is nice. Oh, cute. Oh, having yeah. the big brother as an upperclassman. That's adorable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they like each other. They're They're pretty close. They share a room. They shared a room in our old house. And then we bought a larger house because we were all stepping on each other's toes and they still chose to share a room, which I think is so sweet. And I'm encouraging it because I think it's adorable. When you were pregnant with Arthur, how did you handle any anxiety that might've come up or fears, especially after your experience losing Charlie? Uh, it was, it was tricky there, but there were definitely some things that helped. Um, Emily Vietz, who was the student midwife uh, with Charlie had gone on to graduate and when was then working at the practice where I had returned with so I was pregnant with Charlie Emily was a student midwife then Arthur I was pregnant with Arthur and Emily was a new registrant like a newly registered midwife so she was my midwife again which was really nice for continuity of care and she sort of reminded me we, we talked a little bit of some of the things that had happened and she got the birth report for me from the hospital just because I it was sort of a haze the whole experience. And I just wanted to see, you know, if I remembered things any differently. And also I just really, really relied on the evidence that showed that the, 
the what Charlie had, an idiopathic non-immune hydrops fatalis and probably an inborn metabolic rate disorder is so rare and so random and it had no genetic link. It had nothing to do with anything that we could discover at the time. So I had been offered the option of having an ultrasound every single week or, you know, more often throughout the pregnancy. I don't remember the frequency to be honest, but it was a lot. And I spoke about it with my midwives and we just sort of decided that we would just carry through with this mid, uh, this pregnancy as, as normal, as a normal, perfectly healthy pregnancy, because that's what it was. And there was no statistical or logical reason that uh, the high drops would come again with this particular pregnancy. So I just really tried to hold on to that. And basically if the high drops didn't present itself on the 20 week anatomy scan, that's, it's that timeline where it, it's it's more of an alarming uh, presentation. If it comes up in the third trimester, it's much more manageable. But if it shows up at, by the time the anatomy scan comes, that's when there's more cause for concern because it means that there's something in the way the baby's forming that is uh, severely compromised. So I had a normal 20-week anatomy scan, and I did I recognized the ultrasound technician. It was the same one, so I did uh. say to her, she didn't remember me, you know, this is like one of the biggest, it's the, one of the biggest and best hospitals for pregnant women in Canada, you know, and probably ranked very highly worldwide. And so I just said to her, you know, the last baby I had had high fatalis and this is what happened with the pregnancy. And so she, she sort of looked extra closely, I think, and it was fine. So I felt I felt good about it. When you came home from the hospital, your mother had left a basket of food for you, of all the foods that you're not supposed to eat when you're pregnant. Yeah. And when our listeners will hear it in the essay, but I wanted to mention just how much that touched me. Do you have any other ideas for friends or family who want to support a woman who has experienced pregnancy loss? I think it depends on the person, first and foremost. Um, But I think it's really important to acknowledge it. I think one of the things that I realized when we were doing our family tree were that there had been babies who had died either at birth or soon thereafter, as I mentioned in my story. And it wasn't so much that these were horrible family secrets. It's just that the... You know, I had always assumed that it was the oldest people in the family that you forgot about first. But after this experience, I realized it's actually the youngest ones and the smallest ones because, you know, people don't want to make people upset or people don't want to make people feel awkward. Either the mom doesn't want to make a stranger feel awkward or a stranger or a friend doesn't want to make the parent who's going through the loss feel awkward. And then eventually you can only say it so many times, even if you think about it every day, my baby died, you know. There's not, it's not like you have a whole life with this, this person to, to, to talk about or memories to share. It's just this one moment in time that is completely bittersweet. And so for me, I think it's, it's really, really helpful to acknowledge the loss and just try to let the mom know that, you know, you're aware that it's there. Like so many things, I think when people pretend they didn't happen, it tends to make it worse. Did you find it cathartic to write your story? And what was the difference between writing it and then sharing it? I I did find it cathartic to write it. I wrote it, I took a five-year leave of absence. After Arthur was born, I had done a, I had done one placement while being pregnant where I was on call for three months. And it was, I knew I wanted to have another baby. And again, I knew that having 
another baby would probably be normal and everything would be fine because that's what the evidence shows. You still have that lingering fear. And I didn't want to go through another pregnancy on call. So I had this whole time off and I wrote this, I wrote this piece, you know, many, many versions of it, basically late at night, just thinking about things. And I did, I do find it cathartic, especially in fact, the publication of it is very helpful for me because when somebody asks me how many kids I say, I always say two, but inside I always say three. We are recording this conversation a few weeks before we'll be sharing it. And I, I didn't realize until this morning, uh, that tomorrow is, um, the anniversary of Charlie's passing. And I was wondering if there is any, uh, particular way you'll be remembering him specifically tomorrow I, I i will probably think about it a little bit more i have a long-term goal of we still have his ashes and i would love to bury those somewhere special and we just didn't know where to do that do that yet and i'm working towards a birch tree on our front lawn with um arthur and simon's placentas it was one of my fr- my friend aaron's idea to make like a full circle of all of them but we have to get permits and stuff for okay, well, will you, you know, planting a tree. So wait, you ha- with their placentas? So did you? Do- yeah, I still have their placentas. I know. No, They've been in the freezer. They even moved houses. <laughs> oh, I there. love that. <laughs> it kind of reminds me when I used to store my breast milk, and then the power went out once, and so we had to oh, ask no. <laughs> ask our neighbors across the street if I could put all my breast milk in their freezer. <laughs> oh yeah, um, perfect. But we so I did placenta pills and. I'm wondering, did you do placenta pills as well? Were you able to get some of that? I didn't do that. Okay, so you didn't do that. Instead, you saved their placenta. And what? Yeah. why did you save their placenta? Oh, I just think it's a lot of – that's sort of a midwifery thing in Ontario. You keep the placenta and you bury a tree. There's There are two mm. trees in my neighbor's backyard, actually, two placenta trees. They had midwives, two home births. And uh, actually, my front lawn also has a placenta tree from the previous owner. So it's it's kind of a – it's just a, it's a normal thing in certain circles in Toronto. Um, and you just give back to the earth, and it just is kind of good luck and a way to remember, you know – the life as a pregnant parent. That a placenta is, is the only it's the only shared organ in the world. So I think it's kind of amazing. I think it's amazing too. And people would get really grossed out because I would want to show <laughs> this is so embarrassing to admit. But with my girlfriends, I'd be like, Do you want to see my placenta? I've got a picture. And I thought it was the oh, most yeah. incredible thing. It looked like this little birdhouse to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh I think that you should just screw the permits and uh, just plant yeah. those trees. Don't ask permission, ask for forgiveness, right? <laughs> just... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the placentas are really cool. I know that when we have clients, we uh, we offer to take the moms and dads and the new parents on a tour of the placenta. And a lot of them are interested in it. Occasionally, someone is really um, turned off by it. But mostly people are pretty fascinated because they've got this baby in their arms. They've just given birth. And then here's the... It's like a water balloon that they were in, basically, with this amazing root system. So it's it's pretty cool. I feel so honored that you spoke with us today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy, busy life. I should share with our listeners that when we were scheduling this call, you had this uh, – it was such a great – 
uh, response of like, yeah, I can definitely say that I can do this time and day, but there's always a chance that I'll be at a birth. Is that okay? And I was like, well, if there's yeah. one place that it should be okay for you to cancel an interview, it's with Atomic Moms to, to help with a birth. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And I am a huge fan of Atomic Moms. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity to share this experience with, you know, an American audience as well, because I'm up in Canada. And just with anyone who has had a loss, I just want to say, I'm with you. When we come back, I'll be sharing Georgina's essay. I have to share that when I told our first guest, Dr. Zucker, that we'd be sharing a profound essay by a midwifery student in Toronto, she said, oh, the essay Still Life. This writing has clearly made ripples around the world already, and I've asked Georgina's sister, actress Rachel Blanchard, to read it for us now. My son was born in Toronto on September 15th. 2010. He had dark, wet hair, and when I cradled him, he was warm and damp, swaddled in a flannel hospital sheet. He smelled just how you would think a newborn baby would smell. He had a pink, thin upper lip and a button nose. His eyes were closed, but the death certificate later said they were brown. I knew from the ultrasounds that he had ten fingers and ten toes, but I couldn't bring myself to count them. In fact, at first... I could hardly touch him. It was John who reached out when our midwife asked if we wanted to hold him. My partner pulled all 2.2 pounds close to his chest and looked at me expectantly. Then John gently placed the baby in my arms. The midwife left the room, and suddenly, with John at my side and my son clasped close, I realized we had become a family. We knew we were having a stillborn that night, but we didn't know the sex and hadn't decided on a name. Should we call him Charlie? I asked, tentatively. Yes. Charlie John? No. Just Charlie. Charlie Showman, then. Yeah. By the time we got home that night, my mom had left a cooler filled with delicious food on our front porch, a baguette, a ham, and all the unpasteurized cheeses you aren't supposed to eat when you're pregnant. Also a bottle of wine, most of which I consumed as John and I sat on the kitchen floor sharing our picnic. At some point, I crawled into John's lap, crumpled into a heap, and began crying. It had never occurred to me that my baby would be anything but healthy. I did everything right, followed all the rules. I took folic acid three months in advance, I abstained from alcohol, I stayed away from secondhand smoke, and I limited my large fish consumption. I went to prenatal yoga, attended all my midwifery appointments, and did all the screenings. Midwifery student by day, pregnant woman by night. I went to bed early reading books on what to expect in pregnancy and how to survive the first year. And, like so many women do, I kept my pregnancy a secret until I had passed the riskiest time, my first trimester. Then, after that three-month mark and first ultrasound, I told my friends and family. Everyone was thrilled. I was so sure about my baby's health that I considered skipping the second trimester ultrasound. Emily, my midwifery student, persuaded me to make the appointment telling me that I could always cancel at the last minute. Since John, a full-time musician, was out of town playing gigs, I ended up going with my mom. An ultrasound technician isn't allowed to share any diagnostic findings. 
The encounter makes for a lot of clicking and clacking on the tech side and not very much talking. The silence also makes for a lot of worst-case scenario films running through the mom's mind. The techs seem to have a sense of this, so instead they may tell you what they're looking at. Here's the baby's hand. Looks like you got a thumbsucker. Sometimes there's a gentle prodding of the mama's belly with the ultrasound wand. Come on, baby. Turn over and say hello. But nothing more than that. As per code, our technician was quiet. But something was amiss. You could see it in the furrow of her eyebrows, the tilt of her head. After almost 45 minutes of a knitted brow and pursed lips, she told me she would be right back with the obstetrician. Alarm bells rang loudly in my head. I was in midwifery care, so an OB isn't involved unless there's some sort of complication. There's something wrong, I said to my mom. I know, she said quietly. There was nothing left to do but wait. By the time the technician had returned with the doctor, it was clear that we were not getting out of this with midwifery care alone. I was in tears even before Nan Okin, the maternal fetal medicine specialist working the floor that day, said anything. She handed me a box of Kleenex as she introduced herself. Your baby has what is known as moderate fetal ascites, and possibly high drops, she began. Ascites are pools of fluid in the baby's abdomen where fluid isn't usually found. There is also a suspected fluid accumulation just beneath the baby's skin. When both of these are present at the same time, we call it hydrops fatalis. Hydrops can have many, many contributing causes. It's more of a symptom than a condition, and it is very important we don't jump to any conclusions. Sometimes it can resolve itself. Other times it might be a little more serious. I'd like you to come in on Monday for further testing. Whatever you do tonight, please do not look this up on the internet. I nodded my head, left the building, and went straight home to Google. The search results let me know pretty quickly that Hydrops Fatalis is a relatively rare condition that usually doesn't go away on its own, although there are some instances of spontaneous resolution. The list of causes was extremely long and didn't sound promising. Cytomegalovirus, toxoplasmosis, parvovirus 19, rubella, Bart's disease, primary chylothorax, congenital cystic adenomatoid malformation, skeletal dysplasia, and that's just to name a few. By Monday morning, John had come home from tour, and we headed back to the third floor of Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Only this time they directed us to the special pregnancy unit. Finally, Dr. Ryan, the head of the fetal medicine unit, entered our room. He introduced himself and got down to business. You haven't been around any children recently. Not that I can think of, I replied, feeling useless. It's amazing. The heartbeat is just perfect, he mused. Back and forth he clicked, first around the baby's heart and then around the baby's brain. He would turn up the audio and we could see a flash in between each beat once the heart had pumped fresh blood to the brain. Thump, thump, flash, thump, thump, flash, thump, thump, flash. This tells us that the baby's brain is getting an adequate amount of oxygen, he said. It is very unlikely, therefore, that it's fetal anemia. And you're sure you haven't been around any children, any sick kids lately? What about cats? I've had cats all my life, but I stopped cleaning the litter as soon as I knew I was pregnant. I was practically bragging, happy to demonstrate responsibility for one element of my pregnancy. Dr. Ryan, I asked tentatively, what is the best case diagnosis? He paused. Possibly fetal anemia. If that were the case, we could do an interuterine blood transfusion. However, that looks less and less likely given the heart rate. As he trailed off, looking at the screen, 
I became aware that one of the nation's top maternal fetal medicine specialists might be simultaneously intrigued and stumped. Everyone from my family members and close friends to Oaken and my midwives counseled me not to get too worried. Ultrasounds were almost too sensitive, they said, and it is best to rule out all the less minor possibilities before getting concerned. Let's look for horses, not zebras, was how one expert tried to console me. And I understood this. I got it. I was a midwifery student myself. While I had only completed first year, I already learned about what normal and healthy pregnancies look like. I also knew that if Dr. Ryan was finding it challenging to determine the reason for our baby having high drops, it probably wasn't going to be born normal and healthy. For all the horses out there, I had ended up with the zebra. The more time passed, the more I wanted to hear someone say it out loud. This isn't good news, and soon you are going to have to make a choice. But no one around me seemed to have the courage to say it, and I certainly didn't have the courage to ask. So the words just floated around the room, unacknowledged, while we all turned our attention back to the thump-thump flash of our little baby on the big screen. It was the end of the day, and we were the only ones left in the clinic. The next day promised more tests, but first we went to the genetic counseling department. Sitting in Hannah Schroker's office was like looking at the previous day in a mirror. I thought of the massive bulletin board filled with pictures of the many babies Dr. Ryan and other doctors at the special pregnancy unit had saved, and all of the accompanying thank you cards. I couldn't help but wonder about the families who hadn't submitted thank you cards or pictures. I wondered about the babies who might be alive in this world but suffering, or the ones who simply hadn't made it. My hope was that our meeting with Hannah would give us permission to wonder, without feeling like hypochondriacs or cynics or brutes, what roads we might go down. Together, John, Hannah, and I mapped out DNA, etching the roots and branches of Maya and John's individual family trees until it merged into our own little sapling. My head hurt from all the terminology, and I realized that, in spite of Hannah's best efforts, if I hadn't been in midwifery the year before, most of the conversation might have been inaccessible. John seemed calm, but utterly overwhelmed. Soon thereafter, Dr. Chidiat, the head of prenatal diagnosis and medical genetics department, came into the room. As he pulled out a medical journal article as referenced, John and I breathed a sigh of relief. The night before, we found the very same article. It felt good to finally feel as though we were on the same page as the experts. With the information gathered from our family tree, blood and ultrasound results, genetic analysis, and a process of elimination, we ruled out chronic diseases, genetic disorders, and maternal or fetal infections. Instead, we narrowed down our little baby's high drops to two or three disorders— all of which had extremely low chances of survival. There were essentially four possible outcomes. The first was that the fluid accumulations would go away on their own and the baby would be born perfectly healthy. This was the miracle path. The second possibility was that the baby would be born, possibly prematurely, and if he or she did survive, it would almost certainly have a major disorder that would mean likely never leaving the hospital or dying sooner rather than later. The third was that the baby would be born as stillborn at some point between now and full term. And the fourth was that we could terminate the pregnancy and help our little baby leave this world as peacefully as we could. We chose the fourth road. In the weeks that followed, I went back to school, and John went to Ireland for a tour he had booked long before. I tried to hide my pregnancy as best I could and skirted as many questions as possible. Not an easy feat when surrounded by a classroom full of women fascinated with childbirth. The baby is due sometime mid-January. I'm 20 weeks pregnant. 
No, we're not going to find out the sex. Yes, I have had my second ultrasound. No, we haven't chosen a name yet. We'd love to have a home birth. Definitely. No, I haven't felt a kick yet. Thank goodness, I thought to myself. I skipped one of my friend's weddings, studied for school, and tried to listen to as much fiddle music as possible, especially that played by myself and John. I wanted to give this baby as much of us as we could, even if he or she weren't meant for this world. On September 14th, 2010, John came home from tour. I took a few days off from school, and together we took an elevator to an unmarked floor in Mount Sinai, and I signed in to set Charlie free. I don't remember much of that day and a half. I do remember that the nurses were very kind and that both Hannah and Chidiat came to check in on me. Our midwives were there, and for longer than they needed to. I felt guilty for asking them to stay with me, because I knew they had a lot to do, or at least might want to sleep in case they got called out to another birth. But I couldn't stand to be there with just John alone. A few days after Charlie died, I sent out a mass email to just about everyone we knew. What am I supposed to tell people? I cried to my midwife. We ended up sending something out that told just enough without having to say any more. It is still something I find myself reciting every so often. John and Georgina wanted to share with you the news of the loss of their firstborn baby, Charlie Showman. Charlie came into this world as stillborn by the hands of midwives Katrina Kilroy and Emily Vietz on September 15, 2010. Because it is unclear what exactly ailed the baby, and because it is likely that the cause of death will never be known, John and Georgina ask to be spared of any questions surrounding the details of this tragic event. I learned a lot having Charlie. I learned that even though a first trimester ultrasound and screen usually indicates a healthy baby, it's not a guarantee. I learned that a 20-week termination, while not necessarily easier emotionally, is much more complicated than a first trimester abortion. You actually have to give birth to the baby after a series of abortion pills, potions, and lotions. I learned that even though the baby is likely to be very small, you might also still have to push and go through something like that, while not quite as painful as full-term labor, is certainly more painful in other ways. I learned that without ever having attended a prenatal birth class, John was an amazing labor support person. I learned that after almost a day of waiting around in a hospital room with a view of a brick wall, something strong and fierce can come alive within me, and I will insist on stripping everything away. The blanket, the top sheet, the hospital gown, the clock from the wall. And then, in the moment Charlie was born, even though I knew he was to be born dead, I learned that I loved giving birth. Perhaps the most surprising thing I learned was the size of the dead baby club that I had suddenly found myself in. I knew my parents had had a son who had died. Their first, Michael, was born with esophageal atresia, a heart condition and some form of developmental delay. He died two weeks after being born. My father, so fraught, had never once spoken of him to me until John and I were making decisions about Charlie, and only then in an email that was simultaneously tragic and touching. If nothing else, it helped me realize that his silence over these past decades was due to heartbreak rather than indifference. Equally fraught, my mom chose a different tack and spoke often of Michael, and always made sure my siblings and I knew we had an older brother. Every year around Christmas, my mom would get noticeably sad and quiet. Inevitably, one of us would ask what was wrong, and she would say, her eyes filling up with tears, Today was the day that Michael died.
Or perhaps, today would have been your brother's 27th birthday. I was surprised to learn of the babies in my own family who had died, either at birth or shortly thereafter. Some of them were named like Elizabeth, after my Auntie Elizabeth, and some of them weren't. None of these little babies had any known reason for being born the way that they were. And while none of them had been forgotten, they are very rarely spoken of. After all, there's only so much one can say. Once we sent out our mass email and our news became public, cards and letters came pouring in. Some were from women my age, some my mother's age, and some the age of my grandmother had she still been alive. Each letter came with its own story. A miscarriage or abortion, or a baby lost during birth or soon after. One told me of a baby that had been born at full term, expected to be healthy, but instead came out dead. Others describe stories more similar to mine, babies that for one reason or another were not destined for this world, and whose parents decided to set them free. They all told me that while I may always think of Charlie with a heavy heart, it does indeed get easier, or at least a little more bearable. After Charlie was born, there was still more to learn. I found out that baby cremations are provided at a discount. I never had the nerve to ask whether it was because dead babies are extra small or because the death of a baby is extra sad. Maybe it's some combination of both. Perhaps the hardest thing I learned was when I finally found the strength to hold Charlie and discovered what so many other mothers who have given birth to dead babies know. Sometimes you, and only you, can hear them crying. Here was my baby, my little Charlie, as quiet and as still as a person can get, and yet, far above me, where the wall met the ceiling in the upper right-hand corner of the room, there were his cries. Charlie's autopsy confirmed a final diagnosis of idiopathic non-immune hydrops fatalis. Beyond this, we never will truly know what ailed him. Chidiat suspects it was a metabolic rate disorder, of which there are hundreds. To know which one is like looking for a needle in a haystack. In some ways, a full diagnosis is even more challenging, as many of these conditions have yet to be named. It's like looking for the needle that is yet to get lost. I think of my little Charlie every day, often more than once and long into the night. At times, I force myself to wonder whether I'd made the right decision, but I always come back to the same feeling of peace. We had hoped and still believe that we set Charlie free into a time of gentleness and stillness. I wished both upon him at his moment of birth and have continued to do so every day since. I think to myself, be still, my sweet Charlie, still in birth, still in life, yet still in my heart, always and forever. That was Georgina Blanchard's essay, Still Life, read by her sister, Rachel. The fiddle playing was Georgina's husband, John Showman. Take care of yourselves, and until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. <laughs>